Okay, this morning uh, we're going to look at several passages of Scripture, um, but most likely I will be mostly in the book of Hebrews and also in Colossians. But there are several other passages that I would like you to turn to as we go along, and you can turn to two of them right now, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and John chapter 3, verse 36. I have been preaching because of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, when, again, Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the door of a Roman Catholic church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, Of course, that particular event, probably he did not expect what was going to happen uh, after posting that, but it did happen, and God was definitely in it because... The whole church needed to be reformed for its abuses. And that's, out of that came the five solas of the Reformation. It's usually called sola gratia, saved by grace alone, covered that already. Sola fide, saved by faith alone. We looked at that last time. And then solus Christus, in Christ alone, that is the one we're going to look at this morning. Now, at this particular point, each one of these has really a question connected to it, a question about this particular doctrine. And of course, one of the questions for this particular point is this, is there any possibility of salvation and the promise of heaven apart from faith in Christ? People are still talking about that particular question. In other words, another question could be, does God have an alternate plan for saving people apart from hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it has been the strong conviction of God's true preachers that according to Scripture, Christ is the only object of the sinner's hope of salvation. Some well-known evangelical leaders, I'll not mention their names, have taught that people can be saved apart from the gospel. One evangelical leader contends that the messages of Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad do not conflict with the essential message of Christianity. The direction some evangelicals are moving toward is that a person can be saved without knowing Christ. But they would tag on to that, but not without Jesus' provision for sin. John MacArthur asks this question, but can people be saved without expressly repenting of and abandoning false religion and human philosophy and consciously embracing Christ alone? He went on to say, because people suppress the truth, they have religion. Religion is of no benefit, he said, whatever, to those who do not know the gospel of Christ. In fact, such people often become extremely religious, but their religion is only a descent into a worse depravity. It is not an ascent to God. 
Its end is judgment, not salvation. It leads to divine wrath and not grace. It is a broad road that leads to destruction away from Christ. It is not and never can be the pathway to the Savior. Now, things like this are the things that are being said even today, questioning whether there are other ways to be saved. But I tell you why, you pick up the Bible and you start reading it, and you start reading the Gospels, and the whole point of the Gospels was Jesus was coming against the religious leaders to tell them, it is not your Judaism that will save you, but it's where the teachings of Scripture lead and point to, and it's not a religious system, it's a person. And that person, of course, you know, his name, his name is Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice the two passages that I mentioned. Of course, the doctrine of solus Christus is well substantiated in the word of God. In Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then, of course, John 3, 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, now if you notice the shift there in that passage of Scripture, that not believing is equated with not obeying God. In other words, the gospel is either obeyed or not obeyed. But those who do obey, they have eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but where does he remain? What does the person remain under? But the wrath of God abides on him. That's the deal in Scripture. Of course, a lot of people can't deal with the deal. They have to alter it. They have to soften it. They have to change the language. But you know what? It doesn't help someone's understanding on what it really means to be a believer, to be a Christian. See, the Bible is very plain and clear that the whole essence of the Christian position is dependent on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in England uh, who had passed away in 1980, very influential. He said that this is the thing that separates the Christian faith from all other religions. Their founders, while important, are not absolutely essential to them. If Buddha had never existed, you can still have Buddhism. If Muhammad had never lived, you could still have Islam. Another, in other religions, it is the teaching that matters. The person is not essential. Other persons might have done it equally well, and the teaching would remain unaffected. But that is not the case with the Christian faith. Christianity is Christ himself. Without Christ, there is nothing. There's no doctrine. There's nothing to believe. There's no Bible without Christ. He is not only central, but he is absolutely vital. And therefore, we have to see that we are concerned primarily and always with Jesus Christ. 
So many who call themselves Christians are not Christians. That is, Christ as a person is not at all essential to them. If Christ is not essential, then you have nothing. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's no letter in the New Testament that tells more about Christ and his work than the book of Hebrews. So I'd like you to turn there. Turn to Hebrews, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and some other verses in Hebrews. But here in Hebrews, while while you're turning there, some Jewish Christians, because of persecutions and difficulties of the Christian life, were half inclined to throw in the towel and revert back to their former Judaism. Then they, as we, are hit with this undeniable introduction that is very difficult to dismiss. It is this, that the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is a God who speaks. God did not speak in content alone, but he spoke, of course, in many different ways. But the content and the manner in which he spoke is listed and recorded in the Old Testament. Now, if you notice in verse number 1 of Hebrews 1, we see that God began speaking about Messiah, about Jesus Christ, long before. It says in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions... Now, just stop there, meaning that God in various parts of the Old Testament spoke of what was going to be. In history, God made known his thoughts, his plans, and his purposes. In prophecy, God gave promises yet to be fulfilled, judgments yet to come, the future of the end yet to show forth the Messiah, his reign, and of course, the glory of his eternal kingdom. And then also, God having spoke in multifaceted ways in the Old Testament, in verse number one of Hebrews, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Yes, God did speak richly and abundantly in so many different ways as the Hebrew scriptures record, but not, but really only in fragments not in completeness. He did it through dreams, through visions, through a burning bush, through a pillar of fire. But the primary vehicle he spoke through were the prophets. He spoke through the prophets. Now, there's a line of prophets that spoke in behalf of God and bore testimony to the truth. Men as Moses and Samuel and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, right down to Malachi, God spoke rightly and abundantly, and of course, yet he spoke incompletely. God spoke through Moses and yet promised to send another prophet vastly greater than Moses, and even through Moses, even though Moses was uh, responsible for the prophecy of the coming of the prophet himself, where it's, said, it's recorded in Acts 7, this 
uh, Moses who said of the, to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and of course, you will listen to him. So God works according to a consistent, straightforward, unswerving plan. Moses was part of God's plan of deliverance and salvation, not just for the people of Israel in, the bond, in bondage in Egypt, but Moses was actually a picture of the one who would come after him and who would be the greatest of all deliverers because the one who would fulfill his promises and come after him would be a spiritual deliverer. God will provide an ideal ruler. He will provide an ideal redeemer. See, those who heard the prophets heard God. Again, God spoke in many different ways, but all of them inferior. It was the apostle John who told us, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So the Lord kept giving more and more revelation about the Messiah, and it grew and it grew until the fullness of time came. And that's what we see in verse number two of Hebrews chapter one. God, in a sense, finished speaking. It says in verse number two, in these last days, he spoke to us in his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In other words, God sent his son, who goes beyond Moses and all the prophets, God now speaks fully in the person of his son. He makes a comparison between a plan that was partial and piecemeal, that came little by little, and something better would come. And of course, that would come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So scripture is really meant to make clear that God's revelation in his son was full, it was final, it was definitive in a way that all previous revelation was not. Now you might expect that the writer of Hebrews, trying to rescue those who were thinking, going, thinking of going back to their old religious system, that he would give them seven essential things about who Jesus Christ is and then the crowning, that, he, that him being also the crowning point of divine revelation, which of course tells us of the greatness and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at those seven, but before I do, let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we look at Scripture, I pray, Lord, that our attention today would be focused on you. Lord Jesus, in you alone, because our faith is in you and what you've done, what you accomplished, what you finished. And our faith is always in you alone. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nothing needs to be taken from it. So I thank you, Lord, and I pray that you would Enable us today to understand the truths of Scripture so we can fall in love with you more and more every day. And I pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. So here's the first essential that Hebrews gives in verse number two. It says that he was appointed heir of all things. In other words, the first one, the first essential unique thing about Jesus is that Jesus, the son, is the inheritor of all things. It says, who he appointed heir of all things. An heir signifies a person who on the death of another becomes possessor of his father's property. The way Christ, the son, came to his inheritance is because the father placed him there. The word heir carries with it several things. First, an heir is the Lord of all he inherits. And secondly, an heir takes full possession of all he inherits. Now, let me remind you that all those who are true children of God are fellow heirs with Christ. As Romans tells us, it informs us that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffered with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That in other words, when we are connected to Jesus Christ as the inheritor, we inherit what Christ has inherited by his work on the cross. A second thing in this verse, a second unique essential, is in verse number two, that Jesus the Son is the creator of all things, through whom also he made the world. His superiority is seen as the creator of all. Jesus was the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time was created. At the very creation, when the eons of time began, God made his son heir of all things. His son, Jesus Christ, created the hundred thousand million galaxies, each containing some hundred thousand million stars. We know now in an ever-expanding universe, Jesus created every speck of dust in the hundred thousand million galaxies, and he also created all the sub-microscopic systems that have no measurable size. In other words, Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that have their being in them. And this theme is, of course, represented in many places in scriptures, like in John 1.3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. But we must not miss the point. The focus here is not the comprehension of the divine act of creation, but the apprehension of the true nature of the Son, where his full deity is displayed and revealed who is one in essence and one in power and one in glory with the Father. Brethren, the one who redeemed us is the one who created us. 
Our Redeemer, R.C. Sproul said, and Creator are one and the same. A third essential, unique thing about Jesus the Son is that he is the radiator of his glory. In verse number 3, it says, and he is the radiance of his glory. This word, effulgence, is preferred. And the reason why is that Jesus does not merely reflect the Father's glory, but is the very beam coming forth from the light source. The word for glory, in other words, for Jesus is this word, effulgent light source of God's brightness. In the New Testament, a good example of God's inherent glory is seen on the Mount of, Trib- Tra- Mount of Tri- Transfiguration, where it says in Matthew, uh, and he was transfigured before them, and his face was shown like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. See, the deity of Jesus Christ birth, burst forth within him, showing forth his glory. The theologians refer to this incident when it's mentioned in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then also the fourth essential in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is that he's the exact representation of his nature. So the Son is the representer of all things. It means to be stamped with something, a perfect image of something, which perfectly corresponds to the image of a die that is cast. Jesus is therefore completely the same in being as the Father. When you see the Son, you see the Father. And Jesus also has his own distinct persons, where when he was talking uh, with Philip, he said to Philip, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? And then Jesus concluded, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You see, the Son bears the exact likeness of God's nature. The divine image and nature of God has been stamped onto the Son. When you see him, we know just what God, the God of the universe is like. We know how he thinks. We know how he talks. We know how he relates to people. We know what his prescribed will is in his word. See, God has spoken finally in his son. And then a fifth thing that is essential to Christ is that the son is the sustainer of all things. In verse number three of Hebrews one, it says, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That Jesus did not create and then let the creation continue on its own. No, but he upholds all of it. He carries it. He supports it. He bears it. That Jesus actively exerts his divine power in the conservation of creation by keeping it from sinking back into its original state of confusion and nothingness, as we found in 
Genesis chapter 1, where Hebrews tells us in 11, chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And of course, when the disciples finally started getting to know Jesus in the Gospels, and when they were in the boat, they Jesus rebukes the wind and the surging waves, and it immediately stops and gets calm. And they said to one another, with fear and amazement, who then is this that commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him? All through the Gospels, we see that the uniqueness of Jesus Christ comes out and must bear on the human heart. So the human heart is drawn to this particular person because he and he alone is the Savior. And so in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3, we see the next thing, the sixth essential unique thing, and it's this, that Jesus the Son is the Savior of all the redeemed. And this is what it says in verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. Purging of sin belongs only to the priest. Well, Jesus is the superior high priest. He not only offers a last and final sacrifice, he does something that no other priest could do. He is the sacrifice. This is where the fullness of the divine character is displayed in his dying love. In the Gospel of John, where it says, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. It's Jesus Christ who exegetes the Father, who tells us who God is. Some of God's attributes were exhibited in creation and in God's providential workings, but in the work of redemption, and in that alone, his full excellence appears. Nothing could have obliterated the abominable mountain of sin and cleanse the indelible stain that had left a mark upon our guilty souls. Therefore, God thought it best, and most for his glory, to ordain the mediatorial work of his incarnate son that he should take away the sins of his people. And accordingly, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, The mountain of our sins was removed and cast into the depth of the sea, and the indelible stain washed clean, as white as snow, by his shed blood on the cross. Only in Christ are his perfections fully revealed. Now, at that particular point, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, just to elaborate a bit on the Son is the Savior of all the redeemed. According to the epistle of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, Christ is actually preeminent in relationship to the work of redemption or the work of salvation. There are four things that God, through Christ, has done for us. 
has completely done for us. And the first thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 12, is that he qualified us. Notice what it says in verse 12, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, something has already been done for the saints, that God has qualified us. That means to make us capable or to make us fit for something. God actually makes us fit to share in the inheritance that Christ receives in redemption. See, we have no fitness in and of ourselves for sharing in the heritage of God's people. We could never have this on our own. It is only as God qualified us for this Christian life and for heaven. And the point of time in which that happens is at conversion. What I mean is by, by conversion is the day that you were effectually called, the inward call, the call that you couldn't refuse that day. Maybe you rejected Christ 20 times, but this day you could not refuse him anymore. That day is the day you heard the message of the gospel. You understood the message, received it by faith in Christ alone, and you repented of your sins and followed him because you knew at that point that God sent his son to die and procure eternal life for you. You you put it all together that day. God helped you to put that together. He made you alive for you to see that. He granted you faith and repentance so you can have that. And so then you can be qualified to collect the inheritance. See, we're the wealthiest people on earth. Did you know that? We own everything. We own the whole universe. So we're privileged characters, and God wants us to know that. We're more than conquerors, Romans chapter 8 tells us. So Do you walk around thinking about that? That you're more than a conqueror? That you won the battle? That you're the richest person on earth? You should, because it does change your perspective on how you live. A second thing we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, is that he rescued us. Notice, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now, this Greek term, domain, exousias, which means authority or supernatural power or ruling power. If anyone is to be rescued out of the power domain of darkness, then it requires a power that is greater than the power from which the rescue is taking place. See, the power domain is the characteristic and the ruling principle of the region in which we live, in which unbelievers dwell before conversion to Christ. It is a power domain where everyone is wholly within its grip. No one could escape. They're absolutely subject to it. They're helpless to gain on their own any kind of escape or release. And in that power domain, the love of darkness abounds. Men, it says in John chapter 3, love darkness rather than light. So they love it there. They're not upset about being there. Matter of fact, they don't really know much that they are there. 
but they're happy there. They try to fulfill their pleasures there. At, in that power domain also, hatred towards God abounds, and even hatred towards people. Hating one's brother is walking in darkness. It tells us in 1 John, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's how people are. That's how you and I were before we came to Christ, if you have come to Christ. And then in that power domain, there's no fellowship with God that takes place. There's a lot of religion. There's tons of religion. There's tons of spirituality. There's tons of philosophies on how to live life. And there's tons of temptations on how to get pleasure while you're in that power domain. But it tells us in Scripture, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, darkness is ungodliness. Darkness is opposition to God. Darkness is estrangement from God, and it includes all those dreadful evils which are involved in an evil state of heart and mind. See, the power of sin, the tyranny of error, the slavery of corruption, these things are everywhere. They're all around us, and they're all around us to the point where they have such a grip on people, no one could escape, but no one really wants to escape. And if they do escape, they come up with their own method on how to escape. And they usually think to escape, I'll just take my life and that'll end it all. And they don't realize if you end your life here in darkness, you'll end up spending an eternity in darkness separated from God. See, so their solutions are all wrong because their thinking has been all wrong. These are all characteristics of all our human natures and all our existence. But to be a Christian means to be taken out of the horrible darkness, out of the life of sin and shame and evil, to begin a, to live a new life, to have a new start. It means you belong to him who says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. See, Christianity is to belong to God, who is light. And him, there is no darkness at all. It is a realm of light. It is a realm of glory. It is a realm of holiness and purity and peace everlasting. It is the inheritance of that the saints receive in light. See, that's what the Lord does. He not only made us fit for that inheritance, but he delivered us out of the clutches of darkness so we can be set free and actually live in the light. A third thing in Colossians 1, verse 13, is he did something else. It says this, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. See, he... How can we ever do that? How can anyone do that? He changed us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. See, this word is sometimes used to describe the deportation of a population from one country to another. So what Jesus does is he deports us. 
He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to this new kingdom of light. He does that. Why does he do that? Because of his love towards us. Because of his kindness towards us. Because of his graciousness towards us. And then one last thing in Colossians that he does for us. In verse number 14, it says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What, is it, what, did it, what does he do for us? He bought us for himself. He ransomed us. And what's a ransom? It is a price for liberating either a person or a thing that has ta- been taken or possessed by another, to set free by the payment of a price. The word redemption has the same idea. You redeem something by paying a price to get it back, and then it comes back to you. To release a prisoner for the payment of ransom. It's like it says in Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. So the teaching here is that Christ, by his death and resurrection, looses our bonds, sets us free, who were prisoners, and that he does so by paying the price. The price he had paid, that he paid, was his own precious blood. That Jesus met the demands of God's holy law. Ransom had been paid on Calvary, and through faith in Jesus, you have been set free. And then, of course, in verse 14, it shows us that redemption and forgiveness go hand in hand. The word translated forgiveness means to send away, to cancel a debt. That Christ not only set us free and transferred us to a new kingdom, but he also canceled every sin debt so that we cannot be enslaved by it again. Satan can't make an indictment to stick against you again because of what Christ has done. So so you see, Jesus Christ is preeminent in salvation. No other person could redeem us, forgive us, transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of darkness of God, and then make us fit for the Christian life and for the kingdom of God. No one could do that but Christ. So see, it's not just about doctrine. It's about, the, it's about where doctrine points and who it points to. It's not just about words on the page. It's about Christ. Now let's turn back to Hebrews and let me finish. There's a seventh thing, a seventh last essential, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, characteristic of Christ's greatness. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, at the end there, it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know what that means? That means Jesus is the finisher of all things. Nothing else needs to be done because sitting was a picture of finishing. You do the work. When you're done with the work, you sit down. But it also says something else. The position in which he takes 
is the right hand of the majesty on high. That means not only Jesus finished, but he was exalted to the position that he left to come into this world, to robe himself in human flesh and to accomplish the work completely on the cross for us. Jesus sits down at the right hand, an attribute of one who is exalted to be a king, and it signifies his might and his majesty. So Jesus' appearance at God's right hand is the intercession we need because what is he doing at the right hand of God? He's interceding for the saints. And as long as Jesus is there in heaven before God for us, our salvation will last and is secure. That, you know what that means? That means that all believers can have assurance of salvation. That's a big one. Because I can't really give you assurance. Even when we share Christ with somebody and we want to try to give them, you know, we read them, these things I've written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. Now, they, can may, they may know at that point they have eternal life, but only the Spirit of God can give one assurance. Uh, what is assurance? I, I, I am completely doubt-free that I'm saved. You know, a lot of conversations I've had with people, they've had a problem with that. They never seem to have that assurance that they're genuinely saved. Well, Jesus had been displayed in these passages as the apex of divine revelation in which Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king and is the finisher of all God has spoken. Therefore, the incarnate son is the superior revelation of God. God has spoken in his son. It is his ultimate communication to humanity. It is a final word, and he's done it in consummate eloquence. That means no one is more precious than Jesus Christ. No one is more superior than Jesus Christ. Not Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon or any of the prophets or the apostles or nor Mary or or Joseph, nor angels. So for the church to depart from the high Christology presented in the Holy Scriptures would be tantamount to departing from the faith once delivered to the saints. The pattern of repeated animal sacrifices by a long line of priests who needed to atone even for their own sins could never have been the way of final and full forgiveness. See, there, that must come from Jesus' final and sufficient sacrifice. As Hebrews reminds us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. These cannot take away as serious and as deadly a thing as sin. All that they can do, all the Old Testament shadows could do is cast the shadow. The reality of the shadow is better blood. Blood that connects the worshiper 
with the Messiah's blood through faith in him. Now, brethren, here is something that we need to think about. If it was impossible for this divinely prescribed Old Testament system, even though it was a shadow, to save, it is more, more impossible for any other man-made invented religious system to save or even provide any value to the point that would be definitively and clearly a way to be saved. In fact, the bottom line is that eternal life cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ. And the Catholic Church was saying that eternal life could be found in the church. But the point is, eternal life cannot be found outside of Christ. And I must warn you that there is an ever-growing mindset called pluralism. You heard the word. Theologian Don Carson divines pluralism as the view that all religions have the same moral and spiritual value and offer the same potential for achieving salvation, however salvation be construed. The pluralist question is this. Is the work of Christ necessary for salvation? Or are there other bases? The pluralists believe that Jesus is the provision that God has made for Christians. But there are other ways of getting right with God and gaining eternal bliss in other religions. In other words, they say that the work of Christ is useful for Christians, but not necessary for non-Christians. Now, there's another philosophy wrapped up in that, and it's pragmatism. Pragmatism really causes us to think, well, if that worked for you, that's fine, but it doesn't work for me. This works for me. So it's a pick-and-choose type of deal. If that religious system works for you, great. I'm glad. I'm not going to have an argument with you over it, but that doesn't work for me. But see, the Bible is saying, no, the only way to be right with God is by Jesus Christ. See, that's why it's so important to study a book like Hebrews. Scripture strongly presses upon us the impossibility of eternal salvation outside of Christ. If it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, it is just as impossible for a Muslim to achieve his salvation by the five pillars of Islam or the Hindu to achieve salvation or whatever they call it in the resolutions of renunciation, or the Buddhists by its ethical system, or the Sikh by its pattern of self-salvation, or Catholicism's system of obtaining inherent righteousness by keeping the sacraments. So then, it cannot possibly be that through his death was necessary for the salvation of some, most could equally attain it some other means or some other way. Paul would say this, may it never be. 
May we never think like that or introduce those thoughts once we know the truth. All scripture affirm that the work of Christ is the only necessary and exclusive means provided by God for eternal salvation for all people in all religions for all time. Now, going back to the Reformation, the Catholic Church had accused the Protestants who protested against the church with many heresies. But there was one great heresy that they accused the Protestants of, and I already mentioned it. It's the heresy of assurance. For the Catholics one could never really have assurance of salvation. Because of Roman Catholic theology and, and really how they arrive at how a person is made right with God. And remember what I mentioned, it's by grace plus merit. It's through faith plus works. It's by Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness. So, Sinclair Ferguson said, if justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's sacrifice is somehow repeated or needs to be represented, if grace is not free and sovereign, then something always needs to be added for final justification. So then if final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is impossible to enjoy assurance of salvation. One could never be sure that he or she has done everything they should to be saved. There's always something to be added. There's always something you didn't do. Do you understand you cannot have insurance like that? So you understand a teaching can produce an understanding of a religious system that one could never know when they close their eyes in death where they're going. Accept Christianity. Accept the word of God. These things I've written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. But you're in Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to close with this passage of Scripture. Because here is the great climax of Christ's finished work in behalf of repentant sinners who believe in Christ alone. And the author of Hebrews says to believers, notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, look at verse 22, 
let us, this is the lettuce bowl of scripture. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, what? In full assurance of faith. You understand that? A believer can have full assurance, not based on anything they've done. They, they, they can't do anything. It's based on everything Christ has done. I can have assurance now because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ accomplished everything in his resurrection. He was, his offering was accepted. He entered heaven. He's interceding for us. He's coming back again. I can have assurance that when I die in Christ, like John chapter 8 says, you're either going to die in the Lord or you're going to die in your sin. That's the only two ways to die. Well, if Christ is taking care of my sin, the only way to, the only way I can die is in Christ. So I'm not looking for the perfection of my life. Don't ever look for the perfection of your life. Don't ever think you have to do one other thing to obtain salvation. Oh, yes, God wants us to be holy. He wants us to be godly. That's what the Spirit of God is producing us, but you'll never be perfect because you're sinners, and you're going to sin to the last day you die. But all that sin, that mountain of sin has been taken care of by Christ alone. Therefore, you and I can have assurance, confidence. It says there, assurance. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then what are we, what are we able to do after that? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to good works. We're able to encourage others. Why? Because we have assurance. Because we don't doubt. This is the only way. There's no other ways. It's only through Christ. We have assurance, and that assurance gives us boldness. Not only boldness to live, but even boldness to die. And there's nothing more sad. There's nothing more sad in this life than to stand by someone's coffin and know for sure they have never trusted Christ. I know both you and I would want to rush into their life and save them, but that's not how God designed it. He didn't design it that way. Martin Luther saw in all this a radical distortion of the doctrine of justification and the suffering of the merit of Christ, the only grounds for our justification and salvation, and, of course, the only grounds that the Holy Spirit of God can ever give anyone assurance of salvation. And he does it through his word. See, the word of God clears up a lot of things. You know, you have to hear it, study it, meditate it, and you realize what God has done. And it doesn't make you proud. It makes you humble. It makes you humble, it makes you thankful, and it makes you usable by God that he will use you in this world. So, in other words, the Protestant reformers discovered anew from Scripture that a sinner is saved by grace alone, justified by faith alone, apart from any works. And, of course, Redemption made possible and complete in Christ alone, solus Christus. And what I started with, I'll end with. And there is salvation in no one else. For, no, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the truth of Scripture. I know, Lord, that Scripture does, the Spirit of God uses Scripture to do things in our mind and heart that nothing else can do. As Hebrew tells us, it can reach down to the darkest, deepest recesses of the heart and cut and slice and perform very skillful surgery like nothing else can. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would impress upon our minds and hearts that the only way anyone could ever be made right with God is to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation because of the essential greatness of your character and work. No one could have even come close to what you've done. And so, Lord, let us rest in you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would not only bring people to salvation, but you would bring them to assurance of their salvation. And I pray that you would bless them with a boldness and a confidence that they don't have to waver in their faith. But I pray, Lord, that you would keep them close to the word of God. I pray that you would keep them humble and serving in your church with your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would make them saints who are able to come along others and poke them to do the good works that God called each each of us to do. And Lord, thank you for what you've already done and what you're going to do. We bring praise and honor to your great name. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.